Yeah, uh, good afternoon, everybody. I was going to say good morning, but uh, lovely to see you all here. And uh, yeah, embarking on this topic of is compassion the answer to the world's suffering? Uh, yeah, big, a big question and not, not one that I'm com- going to completely answer. Uh, you'll be surprised to hear. <laughs> but I'm going to say a few things in a, as a personal response as a, as a Buddhist, but as a human being uh, amongst other human beings here in the room. So, uh, in a very well-known Buddhist uh, scripture uh, called the White Lotus Sutra, the Buddha likens the world and our experience in the world as uh, a burning house. He says the the, um, the world is like a, a wonderful mansion. It's very, very beautiful. Uh, it's it's very ancient and beautifully made, but it's actually decaying all around us all the time. It's decaying, and now it's caught fire. Uh, and he says, we are like children playing in this burning house, unaware of the danger, uh, completely engrossed in our games. And that's, that fire, that fire is a fire of suffering. It's the fire, the existential fires of sickness, old age, of death, of grief, of loss, of separation. Uh, we see it around us uh, all the time, don't we? We see those fires burning all around us. And we glance at them, but we don't really realise their true import. And we carry on with our our games. Um, Myself as much as anybody else, um, it's very, very hard somehow to take in the truth of of the nature of our existence, actually the the impermanent nature of our lives and the sorrow and the, uh, the, the suffering that can go with that at times. So the world is on fire, according to the Buddha. And I was reflecting with that image of fire, actually that the world can sometimes seem literally ablaze. Um, I was, the images came to my mind of scenes of this year's um, looting in London and Manchester, you know, all those blazing buildings. And uh, it seemed like, I guess they were mainly young people, but not necessarily, uh, throwing petrol bombs and looting buildings, uh, seemingly just for the hell of it and because they could do it. Uh, there's a... Yeah, sense of, in a way, sort of a lot of poignancy and suffering just in that very image. I see the ruined, burnt-out buildings of um, a town in Libya or Palestine or Afghanistan, and there's images of like tanks sweeping by, uh, under gunfire, soldiers running along the pavements. Um, at the same time, the very sort of domestic scenes in the background, you get this sort of poignancy of, of violence in a very ordinary situation citizens sort of scattering or sometimes going about their ordinary business with sort of, you know, machine gun um, holes in the walls behind them. The tragedy of wars that have been started to bring peace or to end terror. A very strange uh, world that we live in. So to me it seems as though the world seems to have become more tightly caught up in fear and violence than I can remember. Um, although I know that sort of um, violence, in a way, that is the nature of the world, and no doubt it scales up and down over the generations, and our generations see that rising and falling. Suffering also, I was thinking, well, it burns as loneliness. Uh, in the more modern, modern sufferings of stress and anxiety, of depression, meaninglessness, lack of purpose in our lives at some some points in our lives, maybe for longer stretches sometimes. Suffering burns in the hearts of neglected, 
uh, old, sick people uh, in the fear and pain of those subject to violence and abuse. And suffering, I was thinking it burns with a particularly cold flame in the isolation and the disconnection that you know, quite a few of us suffer from time to time in this modern virtual web-based era. Um, everything seems to be there. It's sort of available, isn't it, at the touch of your finger on the mouse. But somehow there's nothing there, nothing there at all. It's all there, but then there's nothing. There's no substance. So we get a sense of connection, but without any real uh, substance behind it. There's no real element of human engagement sometimes. Is there in that connection? Uh, we don't meet the real multidimensional person. So there's a sense of more and more people living in isolation, living in this virtual society, uh, a society with uh, can have it feels sometimes less and less of a, of a heart. And I was taking myself back to my own experience, I guess it was about 35 years ago, uh, when I first came through the doors of a Buddhist centre, um, sort of by chance actually, because some friends were going along, so I thought, well, I don't want to get left out, I'll go along too and see what that's all about. And I was only really vaguely aware that my heart was burning. My heart was burning, I was suffering uh, I wouldn't have admitted that to myself at the time that there was any suffering in my life uh, when I, uh, you know, at that point in my life. Um, but actually, when I, you know, looking back on it, and uh, even, you know, at the time in the back of my mind, I knew that I'd sort of given up expecting there being any meaning in my life or a sense of purpose. And I wasn't really looking for anything. Um, I had a sort of quite a busy life and satisfying enough in terms of my career and some friends uh, but basically uh, I think I was quite deeply bored actually and you know, stuck and a bit lonely and I think almost a bigger uh, aspect of that suffering in my experience then was that I didn't, it, I didn't admit to myself that I was uh, suffering that I was unhappy I was sort of trying to cover it up and be normal and that seemed to be what everyone did anyway that uh, nobody, you know, nobody else seemed to have much of an idea about what life was about either and uh, we just sort of got on with it, went about our lives, um, enjoying what we enjoyed, and yeah, without I, I imagine other people didn't really have a sense of connection to anything deeper either. <coughs> and looking even deeper, sort of reflecting on it now, I've got the sense that I probably felt if I did own up to that in myself, then I would be overwhelmed by it, that sort of sense of, of meaninglessness, because I didn't have an answer to that. I didn't really know what I would what what would um, fill that space what I would do so yeah I, I think there was this sense of actually holding back from my feelings in, in my own experience as well as and therefore not being able to share them with others either so there's that sense of you know disconnection that can come about because of that and a sense of deeper isolation so the one thing the Buddha says about suffering is that uh, it can either lead to confusion or to searching so it, it can have those two um, uh, quite strong um, responses that can come to suffering. And I'm, I, obviously I can probably think, looking back, that that was confusion. That was my, I was the confused type in that, because I, um, I hadn't got the sense of, I can definitely find something. I was more just wandering around. Um, it's very, I think it's very easy to close down in the face of suffering and to become a bit numb, isn't it? Uh, I'm sort of presuming that some of us share that sort of experience, but the, it's hard to really engage very fully. And particularly when these days it seems there's so much suffering in the world, 
Uh, it just seems you know, too cruel almost to contemplate it. The images come sort of thick and fast on the media. And it's as though other people's suffering become my suffering. So I, you know, there's, there's a strong sense of really feeling it, in a sense. And that can be, yes, over, just overwhelming. I think one thing um, I realised I had been closing down much more once when I had we just came back from a retreat. Uh, retreats, um, I'd gone into the country and we were doing more meditation and quite a spacious program with quite a quality of um, connection with others and uh, you know some uh, yeah it's a very beautiful place came back and just picked up a newspaper and read some of the stories in the paper and immediately my eyes were just filled with tears at the at some of the stories that were in the newspaper and it made me realize that before I had been pretty disconnected you know it's a bit like that feeling was so immediate at that point and although it felt in a way painful to bear witness to that suffering and to feel with that suffering. Uh, at the same time, I realised it felt really good. It felt very healthy just to be able to feel it. It felt like I was actually part of the human race much more because I was feeling it. So there was this pain in my heart at the other people's pain, but it felt like a healthy, a healthy pain, a healthy flow of emotion. And I thought, well, to, to close down is to suffer. Um... Yeah, I'd suffered from that a lot of my life. I'd held down a lot of my feelings. And, yeah, that closing down was as much maybe a worse suffering than just opening up to what was going on and living from that. And that's when the, the dictionary definition, uh, or a dictionary definition of compassion I came across, is to that compassion means to feel with, or to suffer with, in fact. So it's actually, in essence, it's a very joined-up, connected uh, experience. Uh, it's not one of somebody somehow separate or superior looking down on this suffering person over there. That if we really feel compassion, um, we're actually feeling it with the person. We're not actually separated from them. There's, a, um, there's an identity, really. There's a sort of um, that sense of really being with the suffering because we... Um, relate to it in ourselves and we're just with it with, in with others it's a relationship between equals you could say a relationship between equals we're equally suffering with the other person so yeah one of the, one of the um, questions for me on the spiritual path personally has been how to open my heart and really feel with others that's been in a way it's one of my um, koans that I guess I've been uh, it's been a value I've wanted to do and it's been something I've worked to do. How to be a true part of humanity, you could say, and uh, not cut off and not isolated but connected. I think there's, a, there's such a beauty in that. It's something I am you know, currently aspire to even more, connection. Yeah. And, yeah, then I think that's in a way obvious, but it it seems to me that uh, to be fully human, to make the most of our human life, is not only to make the most of ourselves as creative individuals, but to become fully engaged members of the community of humanity. It's sort of sharing the common hopes and fears and troubles and sufferings and the joys and the ordinarinesses, the specialnesses of our shared world. So the question then is, well, how best can we contribute to the future happiness and well-being of humanity, of the, of the planet, 
how can we as individuals even do that? It's quite a big question. Um, and it can be such a, such a big question that we just think, oh, well, you know, that's too big. I think I'll um, go on to something else, like uh, what should I have for dinner? <laughs> or something a bit more, maybe something a bit more depth, like, yeah. Yes, how to uh, be present in the moment. Yes, but how can how can we? Because we can each contribute to the well-being of the planet, can't we? And each of us, in our way, can make a difference. Uh, what so? Yeah, what is the best way? Is there a best way that we can ease the suffering of the world? So a lot of what I'm going to talk about, I think, now is to do with our need to learn to be with and respond to our own suffering in order to be with and respond to the suffering of others in the world. Um, but I'm, I'm going to start actually by... I've been reflecting quite a bit about society and the society we live in um, and the direction that's going in. So I want to say a little bit about that first and then move on to saying something about a more politi- a personal or spiritual response to, to suffering and nature of suffering um, and then uh, bringing into that aspects of how the Buddha saw the nature of suffering and its causes and the way leading to the ending of that suffering. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess um, there seems to be such a lot uh, in society to think about at the moment. So many dimensions to the, in a way, the great uh, treasures of society and our civilization, but also these extremes of violence and suffering. It seems to be a society of great extremes. Um, but mainly the first thing I was thinking was how, in a way how grateful I am to the many, many people who've helped bring about the society that we do live in and how amazingly lucky actually we are to live in such a relatively civilised or open-minded country that, as we do in the United Kingdom. Um, and thinking, well, that is it's the product of this very hard work and the revolutionary ideas of generations and generations of people, thinkers, great thinkers, philanthropists, humanitarians, activists, great men and women uh, who've, in a way, over periods of time, um, given their lives, really, to think through uh, what human beings need and what is a right and just way for human beings to live in the world. I think... Uh, I think it's just really amazing that so many people have just been doing that um, and we've actually created through that a society that is actually very uh, based on sort of quite genuine values uh, and there is quite a sense of compassion in in society and that's continuing these days with ongoingly really people uh, working to protect freedom of speech um, and other aspects of human rights even animal rights uh, that's going on in all different parts of the world as, as we speak. Um, yeah, so I think culture and society are very are very great things to and we yeah to, to, re- to really sort of um, experience that. And yet they're in a way also still stepping off points, just stepping off points. And they, there's a sense of imperfection within that because, uh, as I was thinking with say the looting that was going on in Manchester and London earlier this year that sometimes it can really feel like this civilization is just a very thin veneer, you know, over the surface of something quite quite sort of wild, actually, and sort of quite, still quite um, relatively savage. I guess perhaps, that's, perhaps we're each like that, actually, we're, if we think about ourselves. <laughs> We've got this thin veneer of something quite civilised, and underneath 
there can be raging emotions and raging passions and uh, uh, I had an image of this sort of stream of I mean it sounds a bit um, negative doesn't it but this sort of stream of greed and hatred and delusion but uh, those sort of pools are there quite deep in our psyche and uh, yes so they can sort of just shoot through the surface um, take us by surprise so yeah I think uh, society still does need an infusion of radical thinking there are a lot of radical thinkers about but it, it think it needs an infusion of quite deep thinking to get at the roots of the problem of suffering in the world um, I think it's a, and this is a time when society does need to look at itself very deeply and, and also I think compassionately not too blamingly but um, yeah so the, where can we go from here So actually, in preparing the talk, I was I listened to a few uh, web-based talks on this um, website called uh, TED T E D, which is a platform for uh, people in the world to share ideas. So that people are, I think you can actually put yourself forward to give one of these talks, ten to fifteen minute talks. Um, that's all they are, and someone just sharing an idea very succinctly. Usually, actually, almost always backed up by some sort of scientific evidence. I noticed, and a lot of them are American. Very, but some very, very good, very, very interesting, uh, and also inspiring um, energy that's coming through those talks. So, what I was going to share because it seemed very relevant to this theme was by someone who's an influential social thinker. He's even an advisor to the European Community, and written lots of books. He's called Jeremy Rifkin. And he was saying that, uh, actually there were several talks on empathy and compassion, and his, in his he was saying that recent research into the quality of empathy has been showing that human beings are soft-wired, he called it soft-wired for empathy. Uh, so we're, it's actually in our, in our constitution, in our DNA, to experience another person's plight as if it were our own experience. And it wasn't just human beings, actually, it was various other sorts of animals as well that... Uh, He's saying so that you know, it's a primary, it's a fundamental human response, is, is an empathic one. Uh, the primary need really is to belong. It's, to, uh, to, um, it's for companionship and affection and connection. And that aggression is just a, is a secondary, it's a secondary thing. It's not that, in a way not innate in the same way that uh, empathy is. Uh, so that aggression can come out more when the, this connection and other needs are thwarted. And it's in a way, it's a more neurotic side of us, you could say. It's sort of not so natural. And I've got his book actually; it's about this thick, two two or three inches thick. So I haven't read much of it yet. Uh, But he talks about how that quality of empathy has grown and broadened over the over the millennial centuries due to human beings' um, ability to connect with wider numbers and types of people. That that quality of empathy actually develops. Yeah. So I thought, in a way, that's encouraging to consider that empathy is this sort of natural uh, quality, and it's an important basis for our feeling. So, yeah, that's something we could just maybe remember when we lose track with our own sense of connectedness with others. And it's an important quality because, uh, well, Rifkin talks about it as being the basis of morality and ethics, and and of civilization itself. That the basis of um, us acting skillfully is of actually um, imaginatively being able to feel for and identify with other people 
or other living beings, not just human beings, that we can, if when we can do that, uh, then we don't harm, you know, we, we actually, um, we feel that their suffering would be like our suffering. And that's a very, 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 very sort of um, skillful, ethical position to be in, isn't it? To, to actually sort of feel that, uh, that tenderness of response to others, I think. It feels quite exciting, actually, to sort of consider that we could just sort of connect with that quality in ourselves more deeply. So Rifkin then goes on to say, well, let's start a global debate to rethink the institutions of society to prepare the groundwork for an empathic civilization. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, yeah, well, you know, political, social uh, action can be very, very effective and uh, it'd be great. I'm right behind that. And uh, uh, anything we can do to, uh, you know, sort of in a way create conditions for a more empathic civilization, uh, that would be all to the better. And also, uh, just to mention, he was what he was he was seeing the, a positive side to the this coin of the coldness I was talking about in virtual communication. And he was mentioning, well, there is the the posit- very positive effect of the internet in creating sort of spontaneous connection across the national boundaries because people just connect over the internet, and all sorts of um, very uh, generous or you know positive websites just sort of seem to crop up where people just help each other for free. Someone puts something on the web and they say, well, come here and I'll give you advice on this. It's free. And there's, apparently these things are just sort of mushrooming. So it, it does show human, you know, that people want to help each other and uh, there's this wish to help and wish to respond with kindness. But he does, he does ask the question, uh, well, he sees also the virtual, the high-tech side, is the way it's using the resources of the world but at the same time, it's got this potential for universal empathy that, that we hold the boundaries of our, our response to other humans could become global, that we could create a global society where people are just con- completely uh, empathic to just humanity and living beings. <coughs> but he says, can empathy for the world grow fast enough to save the world? So it's a question, isn't it? So yeah, that's a, I think that's a, a social one of the social you know responses to the suffering of the world, which is very exciting that that's really happening. And uh, um, yes, would yeah want to really think how could we support that in, in a way in our uh, own lives, in our own um, what we can do to help. So so there is that, and then it feels as though there's a, the, the root of the problem of of suffering is well, it's as deep as um, existential nature of humanity really isn't it it's uh it feels as though the the answer to compassion is ex- existential it's to do it is to do with us facing our own suffering it's to do with us sort of in a way going under the surface of our streams of greed hatred and delusion visiting those rivers or fires of of suffering maybe visiting our own darkness even our, um to actually become conscious of those inner drives and urges our own inner drives and urges um, so that we can learn to transform them and tame them and bring that energy along for the service of, of the good the service of humanity so the, the Buddha the Buddha looked at very deeply at human suffering it was, in a way it's one of the very first um, things he taught about was the nature of suffering and in a way perhaps it's a spur for a lot of us to um, consider the spiritual life is 
what do we do about suffering? And he said, uh, well, he just pointed out that the way things are, that suffering is inherent in being alive and embodied, and that we suffer due to sickness and old age and birth and death and pain and loss and grief. And on an emotional level, we suffer when we don't get what we want, when life doesn't go as we want or hope or expect it to, we suffer quite often. So uh, we suffer when we don't get what we want, um, but we also sometimes suffer when we get what we want, don't we? So that's, <laughs> that's the way life is. <laughs> we said we suffer when we're with the people we don't want to be with, and we suffer when we're isolated from the people we want to be with. Um, and then, of course, we suffer when we're with the people we want to be with too. <laughs> so it's, it's good to see the humour in it, really, isn't it? <laughs> but um, basically, it sees we are pulled about by our likes and our dislikes, aren't we, and our longings and our aversions. So if we really, really want to be with somebody and we really can't, then you know, there is suffering. Yeah, so it's our inability just to be with what is and be in the moment with our experience as it is that creates suffering. Um, yeah, so we try to push away our experience, and of course that only that only makes matters worse. So he then he gave a second teaching on suffering, which uh, when he gave a sort of a little analogy about suffering, it's called the teaching of the two darts, and he says it's as if uh, well a dart is like an arrow, I think. So uh, I don't know if it's a, don't think they played darts in those days. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be something more to do with warfare, but. Uh, Hmm? It's probably an arrow or something. It just reminds me of William Till. It's arrow shooting across the room, taking an apple from somebody's head. Anyway, um, so he said that uh, suffering. So the, the, there's a written initial suffering, which is when we get an arrow gets stuck into us. Let's say it gets stuck into our hand. Um, so we get this arrow that's stuck in us, and that's obviously very very painful. Um, Sometimes we don't realise how painful something can be coming until it actually happens. Like you sort of hurt your finger or something, and uh, it just it sort of takes your whole day to uh, <laughs> sort of get used to that. Anyway, um, yeah. So we get this arrow stuck in us, or we might hit our finger with a hammer, or have a splinter on our finger, or somebody criticises us. That's another one, isn't it? Or we get some very bad news, very shocking news. So all of those things are just painful. Uh, they can be very, very painful, actually, sometimes. Just, they can take us by... It can be a shock. That pain's often a shock, isn't it, as well? Uh, so the Buddha was saying, well, if we can sit and bear that pain just mindfully and not add on anything to it, well, then it naturally just passes away, the pain, because everything changes and everything is, by nature, a flowing experience. There aren't sort of static experiences. Things don't, aren't just sort of stuck unless we hold on to them. So things just naturally just change. Um, if we can just sit with that experience and just be with it but very often we don't remember to do that of course it's a shock the pain as well and we, it often just takes us off knocks us off our balance um, we don't sit with the pain um, we have resistance to letting in the pain and maybe we then begin to we perhaps immediately have things like so why is this happening to me that's not fair um, it's you know it's somebody else's fault that this is happening uh, we can get all sorts of narratives in our mind about the pain and sort of try to push it away. And then we feel that we shouldn't be feeling what we're feeling, and that's bad, actually. The Buddhists don't do that. They sit with the pain, and so you get this sort of complexity of emotions and counter-emotions and, and get, end up being pretty wound up. 
So the Buddha says this is like a second dart or a second arrow, this, this sort of secondary suffering, which is what we do when we get this first suffering, you know, all those complexity of reactions. And that really does pin us down. You know, sort of, if we're against this dartboard, we're sort of, this second dart is really quite a severe one. And we've chosen that second dart, actually. We've said, please send me a second dart. <laughs> so we're pinned, we're pinned to the wall. <laughs> and it can be worse than the, the primary data. It's much. We have to basically. We've got to unravel it all, haven't we? We sort of set it up, and we've got to unravel all that secondary suffering. Yeah. So you know, it's it's hard to unravel. I mean, we are, there's a lot of habit involved in secondary suffering. We're trying to protect ourselves from pain, and we don't notice that it isn't working. Basically, because we do it over and over again, don't we? This is what we do over and over again. We're not. We haven't sort of learnt. But it's a great teaching, I think, this one of the Buddha's very straightforward. And uh, yes, just to sort of try and bear that in mind, we can begin to sort of just let go, cut down a bit on that, um, yes, how we react to pain, how we prolong it. Um, yes. And they can leave us feeling quite blocked and stuck. I was also thinking and... You know, my the experience I talked about was first coming to the Buddhist Centre. I that was probably that's what that was. That that sort of blockness and stuckness was really that secondary suffering. It was that way. That was my resistance to my loneliness or my isolation. And if I could just be, I know that these days, if I'm just sad and I can just be with that sadness, uh, well, in a way, it's quite heart heart opening, isn't it? You can sort of, uh, it's. Um, not so bad. It's not so bad. Things just sort of can move on. So, yeah, empathy. So, really, I think we need to start with empathy for ourselves. Um, feeling with ourselves and not against ourselves. So, in terms of developing empathy for others, um, I think that's going to be limited to the extent that we, um, if we can't develop that empathy... Uh, for ourselves and feel compassion towards ourselves in our own suffering. So there's something here about uh, our suffering is identical to other people's suffering. There's not, not really a difference. And so it's equally important for us to feel with our own suffering as it is for us to feel with the suffering of others. Um, I, think that's, and we don't, I think it's hard to take that one in sometimes for some reason. Sometimes we can feel that other people are more important or their suffering is more important and not notice our own, but... There's a bit of a relationship there that, uh, to the extent I think we can be alive to that feeling of what suffering is in experience, we can, we can be alive to it in others. And it's very valuable. Yeah. And I think, I think also through uh, learning to sort of bear our own suffering and be with our own suffering we gradually come to understand, understand the true nature of suffering and begin to see through it and be able to stand separate, in a sense, from it, or maybe stand still within it, that quality of equanimity that stands strong. I think it's being with our own suffering also that then protects us from looking down on other people as these separate suffering people and feeling that sort of pity that can be... Uh, can leave us feeling sort of in a good position and them in a bad position, but it isn't very, uh, it's not very real. And that, that can lead to us being patronising or inappropriate. 
And I think I think also that sort of separation out from other people suffering can also we can also get quite sort of heady and have lots of ideas about what we can do to help um, instead of actually listening to what people really need. Um, yes, which can be completely completely something we couldn't imagine. Actually, I've definitely had that experience of sitting with somebody and I've been thinking, oh. They need to, I don't know what it's been, um, they need me, need me to give them a massage or they need to, talk, they need to um, have a cup of tea and uh, whatever it is. But actually, uh, if I was to ask them, well, what do you need? It, might be, it would probably be something completely different. And sometimes it's just a need to have somebody uh, be with you and hear your experience and not be shocked at you know, the fact that you you know yeah you perhaps are very depressed or um there's a lot of fear in your experience and pointlessness and without trying to fix that and uh without trying to give them strategies to make them better so i think it can be quite hard for us to imagine that people do just want to be as they are without being fixed when we're in that sort of you know slightly separate (laughs) mode you can tell i've had experience of this yeah, it's sort of it's so easy for some of us. For some of us, it's so easy to jump to strategy and think, "What can I do for this person?" But that's partly to do with not being able to bear the, the suffering that they're in, and um, it's my pain that I'm trying to alleviate. Really, my pain that they're suffering. So it's so important to be with our own, know know what that that, that is our own experience, and uh, be with that. Um, and not act from that, not, not sort of act too quickly from a need to alleviate one's own pain. Uh, we can only do our best, of course. That's the whole thing as well. Yeah. And we can, yes, and we can help in lots of other ways. So I think, it, well, it takes a lot of courage to face uh, our experience. Um, it takes a lot of courage to face suffering in that, in that sort of way. And... There was a, another talk uh, on that TED website was by Joan Halifax, and she's an American Buddhist. And one of the things she, a quote that she um, mentioned was, compassion takes a strong back and a soft front. Compassion takes a strong back and a soft front. She hadn't heard that one before, actually. And I, well, it, it was very simple. Uh, so the strong back was to do with the tremendous strength it takes to, in a way, uphold one's awareness and um, empathy and positivity in the midst of that sort of difficult situation which is being with suffering uh, and that strength is the strength of equanimity she was saying so that's something yeah, to th- think about if we're feeling a bit wobbly in the face of suffering so how, what can I do to uh, just restore some of that equanimity or that positivity before I go back out into the, into the front line and the soft front is the capacity to open to the world. It's the capacity to open our hearts, uh, to have an undefended heart, she would call it. Hmm. To really, to really feel. So I guess in a way the strong back actually allows us to open our hearts, to have that soft front. I thought I'd just say a little bit more about meeting our own suffering uh, yeah, so I think sometimes in terms of myself, I felt I've had to step into and through the, through the, some, the flames of my true experience to, in a way, liberate myself. 
And that's meant stepping into the flames of my own suffering. And I was thinking there's something curiously sort of searing about being with one's actual experience, uh, whether it's joyful or sad. Um, it somehow still has the same, it's got some sort of breathtaking quality to it. It's always an adventure, sort of stepping into real experience. And it, I think always I've found that path of being as genuine as I can to myself and my own experience, as authentic as I can, uh, being true to life really, it's been one of um, a greater, in- for me, a greater intensity of feeling both joy and suffering. So I felt as though what we're doing in terms of opening to, perhaps it doesn't sound too wonderful, the idea of just opening to suffering, but in a way what we're doing is opening to feeling. We're opening to feeling, and that means we're going to be opening to more joy and happiness as well as more <coughs> suffering. Because I think when we hold down any aspect of ourselves, we hold down the um, really our... Uh, suffering then we're also holding down our joy and our happiness and all those other emotions so that's something I seem to keep on needing to learn and relearn uh, to let in my uh, own my own suffering um, stay true to myself and sort of not block off big chunks of my psyche in order to do that um, yeah so I think it's a, it's a bit of a, an adventure into the unknown really to there's always seem to be more layers of that that I need to do, that one needs to do, um, in, towards becoming a more integrated, um, more human, truly human human being, and more accepting, perhaps, of... I think the more accepting I can be of myself with all my fallibility, uh, my ups and my downs, then the more accepting I'm going to be of others and of the sort of natural suffering that we all have in the world. So I think, yeah, in in terms of what we can do to help people, what we can do to help society, we can well, we can do an awful lot. There's an awful lot of practical things that need to be done, and uh, I think they're incredibly beneficial and helpful. And we sort of need to use our energy to do those things. But if we, but we need to do it with our hearts. I think as, as much as we can. It feels somehow as if sometimes we don't get to the heart of the matter. Uh, unless we engage our hearts with the suffering of others, the suffering of the world. So I was thinking in terms of my my vision for myself um, in this in this realm. My basic vision for myself on the spiritual path has been a vision of becoming a true human being, truly human, to becoming a really full, fully, tr- truly human being. Um, a member of humankind and I think first of all when I, I was thinking of this my, this meant to me the, the breadth of wisdom and inspiration and creativity and empathy of a great artist or writer or thinker or composer and then more recently I've just been thinking it well it's to do with the humanness of being able to be truly present uh, to be truly present with whoever I'm with uh, at that moment to be, you know, just just to be aware and um, responsive, respectful, really, of each person's unique life and their humanness, and that's almost that's enough. That's that's a whole practice in itself. And that blocking my own experience and blocking my own suffering renders me less human. I think less able to be that functioning, that human being on the spot uh, with other human beings. Blocking uh, aspects of myself. 
um, lead me to being just less present in general in myself. I'm less open-hearted uh, when not in touch with my own suffering and less empathic and less generous. Um, yeah, and when, as I say earlier, being in touch with one's human weakness and fallibility just, in a way, it uh, puts us on the same level as other human beings, much more open and equal. Yeah, so the sort of humanness I suppose that inspires me is the type of humanness which, in which I realise I'm exactly the same as other human beings. Um, there's nothing better about me in a way. It's a bit like, and that's what I'm trying to, in a way, I suppose it sounds like a very ordinary thing to aspire to, but to, um, aspiring to be as human as other human beings. Hmm, something a bit mysterious there. So uh, as a practice of doing that, uh, well, I think, that's, I think that's, in a way, that's, the, for me, that is the answer to the suffering of the world. That if we are, if we all were able to uh, just be present with whoever we were with, if we were able to uh, imaginatively identify with each person as a, you know, as a real human being, just like we are in that moment, then, well, the world would be a completely different place, wouldn't it? It would actually, it would be a place of it would probably slow down quite a bit um, and it would be a, be a place of real human connection and that would it'd be a place of openness actually because you would in a way you wouldn't know where that connection would lead you um, yes so I think we can think in terms of Buddhists think in terms of the great ideal of uh, savoring, saving all sentient beings from suffering as it were uh, through um, yeah, the practice of wisdom and compassion. And, well, the, the idea of saving authentic beings is enormous and rather can be a bit sort of a little bit too much to engage with on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> uh, so what I've tended to do is chunk that down and uh, how I see it is um, t- that I'm going to try to ongoingly be with each person um, with as much awareness and kindness and compassion as I can muster in each moment, ongoingly, always. So the ongoingly, always bit is all beings, isn't it? That, that means, in a, in a way, eventually... Um, well, you can't do more than that, can you, really? I don't think. <laughs> so it feels to me as though that's very down-to-earth and it's doable, isn't it? And um, it has that inspiring, inspiring quality of... Well, there is an aspiration to just continue to do that and work against what gets in the way. So I think that's very exciting. And if we could more of us, um, all of us, everybody in the world did that, then... <laughs> yes. The world would be full of love. Well, the world would be more real, probably. The world would be more real. And uh, it might be more interesting as well, might it? Yeah. Yes, it's so hard to remember these things, actually, isn't it? These aspirations. I need to sort of find ways of putting a tattoo on my hand that says what, be present with each human being. <laughs> but I think, I think when things are overwhelming in terms of the suffering of the world, uh, we can just cut off. So to have like a precept that's really going to help us day-to-day, moment-to-moment, for me, well, that's what I need, and uh, I don't want to cut off from it entirely. So I was thinking, it's what... Um, let's see, I've got a few little lines here I was going to read out. What we do now is what counts. That's what I was going to say. So it's what we do now is what counts. 
it's not what we hope to do when we become a developed human being and a really inspired Buddhist. It's, it's actually what we do now, uh, today. Um, it's how we are with the people we come across in the bus queue, um, the person across the counter at the shop or in the tram. It's how we are with our children and our parents, uh, our colleagues at work in each moment. And it's so it's, um, yeah, just not giving ourselves a hard time about that, but just trying to, you know, in a way, rise to this quality of how we'd like to be, really. Occasionally try and think, how would I like to be with this with this person? Maybe, I know some people set alarms on their watches, don't they, to remind them of things every 20 minutes. And uh, So that might be the lucky person you come across every 20 minutes. <laughs> think, okay, person, this is me. <laughs> they, just walk, they just walk away and ignore you, of course. <laughs> So this is a quality, uh, it is a, a very uh, deep quality we're giving ourselves, aren't we? We're giving ourselves through this, uh, through our presence, through our awareness and our interest. In a, giving ourselves the space to be interested in others and uh, <coughs> let our natural quality of empathy arise, you know, and uh, see where that leads us. I was thinking, as uh, Buddhists, we can be very good at creating a caring and compassionate community together. But really what's needed is to sort of, in a way, get out of our caves and go out into the world. It's to do with, we need to, uh, in a way, open our spheres of concern and interest and influence much wider and, uh, um, say, go out to the world, invite the world in. So, yeah, we in, in giving ourselves to each person that we meet, in a sense, we are giving ourselves to the world. Um, we're letting the world flow in and out through our veins we're breathing the world in, we're breathing the world out. Uh, it's just a, a potential for us to breathe in the suffering, breathe out the suffering, the joy, be on an equal basis with those that we're with. Knowing that we are of the same nature as all beings on the planet who all long to be free of suffering and long to be happy just in the way they want to be happy, not the way, of course, that we want them to be happy. Yes. So I thought I'd, I'd um, bring this talk to an end with uh, another image of fire, but this is an image of transformed fire. It's a, it's a Buddhist image of a, a Buddha called Amitabha, who's a red Buddha. So he's the Buddha of uh, love and compassion. Um, and he's actually, the, the, red, the red of Amitabha is the most beautiful, intense ruby red that you could imagine. He's made of light. Um, just looking at the camera, it's just got a beautiful red light on it. <laughs> yeah, it's beaming straight at me. Yes. So, so Amitabha is a bit like the transformed fire element, I was thinking. Uh, he has all the warmth, all the warmth of fire. Uh, he has all the potency of fire as well. But it's somehow it's um, contained and transformed uh, in the service of the good. It's, and because it's channeled, it's even more powerful than flames, which just, in a way, they just burn up, don't they? They burn up energy, they lose energy. But Amitabha is this quality of very contained, uh, very passionate compassion. And, yeah, so he's also, he's the Buddha of love and compassion, but he's also, in fact, the Buddha of meditation. He's very serene, uh, and he just sits in meditation, just radiating love. Very, very uh, gentle smile, radiates compassion. And the other thing about Amitabha is he's linked with the West, the Western region, and he's often imagined sitting in the sunset, 
so you, I'm just bringing to mind it's a wonderful sunset. You can sometimes get these sunsets which are really flaming, where there's oranges and pinks and yellows, and the whole sky sometimes just gets suddenly it's just covered, isn't it, with these this beautiful uh, golds and reds and oranges of of Amitabha's love and compassion. And there's a quality of stillness, isn't there? Even though you've got this intense radiance and redness and it's the fire element transformed and spreading out over, over the world. So I think uh, that's an image of the potential, really, for our hearts that as we, I think, more and more gradually um, recognising you know, our own feeling, our own uh, the poisons that run below the surface here, I think the more we can just just recognise and be at ease with them and open our hearts to experience, the more our hearts can be filled with this uh, tender um, quality of the serene love of Amitabha, the love of the Buddha of compassion in the world, radiating out across the world. So, I'll end my talk there. Thank you. <laughs>